We live in a world that's heavily commercialized. Everything is an opportunity for profit, including land and natural resources. In order to monetize such things, we need laws that allow for private ownership. The downside, however, is that when this happens, we end up more concerned about our own rights and less concerned about our neighbors. Nations violently defend borders and corporations undertake projects that put the local communities at risk. Scripture, however, counteracts the idea of private ownership and goes out of its way to show that God is the true proprietor. We're only tenants, and we're instructed by the real landlord to walk the way alongside the stranger next to us. Today's bottom line, if God is the Lord of creation, then the nations are called to walk the way together under the instruction of the scriptural God. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. episode of The Way, we review the last Old Testament theme given to us in Father Paul Tarazi's book, The Rise of Scripture. Father Paul gave this theme the name, Scripture's Interest in the Nations. As we heard a moment earlier, Scripture's intent is for everyone to live peacefully together under the care of the Great Shepherd. If everyone were to submit to the Torah, God's instruction to his people, then we wouldn't have an agenda of our own to assert against our neighbor. We'd all be living by God's agenda. In fact, Father Paul writes that God's intention for the land of Cana was for it to be a prototype for all parts of the earth, an earth intended for cohabitation for all children of Adam. The reason we're all supposed to submit to God's Torah is because the entire earth belongs to God. If it's his property, then this means we are only tenants or stewards who look after the earth on God's behalf. Our task is the same as the one given to Adam, who was put in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And by extension, this includes the people who inhabit all the earth. This is in complete contrast to how we think about the earth. Our inclination is to see the earth as private property belonging to this person or that corporation, or even the private property of a nation. Each entity wants a legal claim on a particular piece of land so that they can exploit it and use it to line their pocketbooks. This has led to wars over oil and deforestation of our rainforests. And in the process, the poor usually get exploited for labor or forced off the land that they depend on for food to survive. Rather than living in harmony with others, we've created a system in which an oligarchy of powerful people disregard the livelihood of the majority so that they can capitalize resources as they wish. This idea of private ownership even extends to our modern concept of nationalism, in which a specific ethnic group has rights to a specific piece of land. Or to reverse it, particular ethnic groups aren't welcome in our country because they aren't like us. It's with this sad and unfortunate background that we often come to Scripture. For example, we'll approach the book of Joshua, and instead of asking, 
what's this book saying? We'll ask instead, what does this book say about the Israelites' right to the land? Unfortunately, this is bringing our prejudices to the text, and it leads us to presume that the conquest of Canaan by the Israelites means that they have a right to the land. In fact, it's the opposite message that's given to us by the book of Joshua. Let's take a look at the Battle of Jericho as an example. We're all familiar with the story. Joshua and the Israelites marched around Jericho, blowing trumpets, and after several days, the walls came tumbling down. But we have to be careful. We tend to attribute the victory to Joshua or the Israelites as if they conquered Jericho. But that's not what the text says. Here's Joshua 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the Israelites. No one came out and no one went in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have handed Jericho over to you, along with its king and soldiers. You shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. You see, it was God, the true proprietor, who handed Jericho over to the Israelites, This is made clear by the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. As the Israelites marched around the walls of Jericho, they carried the Ark, which is a sign of God's presence among the people. It wasn't the Israelites' actions that brought down the walls, but rather it was God who was at work. A God who, by the way, doesn't have a temple and goes wherever he wants. In addition, even within the story, God doesn't destroy all the inhabitants of Jericho. He saves Rahab the prostitute and all her house because she has hid the Israelite spies. If you want, you can think of it this way. She had learned to coexist with the incoming Israelites. But there's also another detail that's often overlooked when we read this story. Here's Joshua 6. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction, so as not to covet and take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel an object for destruction, bringing trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Even after the walls came tumbling down, the city didn't belong to the Israelites. It still belonged to God. Even all the expensive fancy things belonged to him. The point is clear. The conquest in the book of Joshua is not about how the land of Canaan belongs to the Israelites. It's about how it belongs to God. It's under his aegis to do with as he wishes. And if he wishes to displace the Canaanites so that the Israelites can live there, it's his prerogative as long as the Israelites understand that God is the real landlord. So what would happen if the Israelites forget this important point? What would happen if the Israelites try to lay claim to the land themselves? 
Well, that plays out when they do forget that God's in charge and try to conquer the city of Ai. They had hoped that conquering Ai would be as easy as conquering Jericho, but that wasn't quite the case. Here's Joshua 7. But the Israelites broke faith in regard to the devoted things. That's those things that belong to God. Achan took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the Israelites. So about 3,000 of the people went up there, and they fled before the men of Ai. The men of Ai killed about 36 of them, chasing them from outside the gate as far as Shebarim and killing them on the slope. The hearts of the people melted and turned to water. Their arrogance and greed to keep what belonged to God caused their downfall. In this case, you could say that God was on Ai's side against the Israelites. If you were to go through the entirety of the story of the Israelites entering into Canaan, the point that it isn't theirs to do with as they wish gets repeated over and over again. Notice, it's God who assigns the tribes to a specific area of land. And if the Israelites buy or sell the land in the year Jubilee, it must revert back to its original owners. In other words, God has given you your dorm assignment and you have to stick with it. But their dorm assignment is dependent on them following the rules. If they don't follow the rules, then God might just change his mind. It's just like us today. If university students don't follow COVID-19 procedures this fall as they return to school, they just might be expelled and sent home. So, at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua gathers all the elders of the land and they renew the covenant between Israel and God. They are reminded that they are to remain loyal to God and obey His commandments. They especially aren't to worship any foreign gods or idols. Here's Joshua 23. You know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one thing has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the bad things, if you fail to do his law, until he has destroyed you from this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he enjoined on you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land that he has given you. So how do you think that turned out for him? In recognition that God is the landlord, all he asks in return is for the Israelites to abide by his rules. This is why God emphasizes that they aren't to follow after foreign gods. You can't follow God's rules and the rules of a pagan god at the same time. You have to pick your loyalties. Well, in the very next book in the Bible, the one after Joshua, is the book of Judges. And we don't have to wait long to see how the whole thing turns out. Here's chapter 2 of Judges. Then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their ancestors and have not obeyed my voice, 
I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel whether or not they would take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their ancestors did, the Lord had left those nations, not driving them out at once, and had not handed them over to Joshua. In other words, the Israelites broke the rule. They bowed down to other gods. What's fascinating about this passage is that God gives them another chance to abide by his instruction, another chance to walk the way. But now it's going to be harder. Now they have to really listen to God because he's going to allow the original inhabitants to stay in Canaan. This is the real test. It's as if God is saying, well, you couldn't follow the rule about not worshiping other gods. Let's see if you can follow the rule about loving your neighbor. Of course, the Israelites still can't worship other gods, but neither can they persecute those nations that do worship them. They have to learn to live with these differences in peace. Let's take a look at some of the specific commands given to them by God. You shall not wrong or oppress the stranger, for you were yourselves strangers in the land of Egypt. That's Exodus 22. You shall treat the stranger who lives among you as one native-born, and love him as you do yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That's Leviticus 19. For the Lord your God shows no partiality. He pronounces justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the stranger, giving him bread and clothing. So you must love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That's Deuteronomy 10. Cursed is he who withholds justice from the alien. Deuteronomy 27. And this idea is carried out over the entirety of Scripture, not just in the law. The Lord watches over the alien at Psalm 146. But no stranger has had to live in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. That's Job 31. Is not this the fasting I have required to bring into shelter the poor wanderer? That's Isaiah 58. I will be swift to prosecute those who turn the alien away, but who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi 3. And it's the same in the New Testament. Do not forget to be hospitable to the aliens, for thereby some have unknowingly welcomed angels. That's Hebrews 13. And of course, we all know Matthew 25. Then they too will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you a stranger and not minister to you? And he will reply, I tell you truly, insofar as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So I used a lot of quotes so as to emphasize the care of the neighbor that's found in Scripture. So let's quickly sum up the point of looking at the battles of Jericho and Ai and the renewal of the covenant at the end of Joshua and Israel's failure to follow the covenant at the beginning of the book of Judges. Whereas most people use these passages to assert a claim on the Holy Land, Scripture is actually using these passages to show that he's the sole owner of the land and by extension, the world. But God isn't just concerned with the land. He's concerned with the people who live in the land. At the Battle of Jericho, we saw how he cared for Rahab. And after the Israelites failed to abide by the covenant, we saw how God was concerned with all the inhabitants in Canaan and instructed the Israelites to look after the foreigner, 
who had now become their neighbor. They are to care for the stranger as if that stranger were family. Through Israel, God is showing his concern for all the nations, even if they don't worship him. They are still his children. What we're seeing is a God of love. Not only that, but as St. John wrote, God is love. This care for the nations isn't just found in these early books of the Old Testament. It pervades all of Scripture. Here I rely heavily on Father Paul's list found in the rise of Scripture. So the book of Psalms underscores God's full control of the nations at the beginning, toward the center, and at the end of the book. The book of Job is about a foreigner who obeys God's command far away from the land of Israel. The book of Proverbs offers the Torah as wisdom, which is the way of life for a Greek, not an Israelite. The book of Ruth is about how Naomi, a foreign Moabite woman, is faithful to walking the way. The Song of Psalms is about how someone weds a dark-skinned outsider. In the book of Kings, we see how Elijah raises the widow's son, a widow who is a foreigner. And if we include the New Testament, we see Jesus caring for a Roman centurion's son and for a Syrophoenician's daughter, both foreigners. And in Acts, Peter has a vision of clean and unclean animals coexisting together in a sheet symbolic of the many peoples coexisting together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Perhaps the most impressive is the image given to us by the prophet Isaiah. He says, In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, for that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's Isaiah chapter 2. This new creation in the resurrection is a vision of all peoples under the care and instruction of God. Peace is so firmly established that there are no need for weapons. No one needs to fight or defend against another person or nation. As Father Paul concludes, no one is the proprietor of the earth of Canaan and by extension of the entire earth except God the King himself. Our challenge is how are we to walk the way, shoulder to shoulder with those who are strangers around us? How do we make them our neighbor and extend God's loving care to them? This isn't just an abstract theological question. It's a question where the rubber must meet the road. So in light of God's love of all peoples of this world, how do we respond in a national conversation about immigration? What do we say when we hear about children being separated from their parents and forced into cages because they happen to be on the wrong side of a river? How can we respond when we hear about displaced people, such as Syrian refugees, or even the people in our own country who are currently being displaced because of hurricanes in the Gulf Coast or fires in California? Or what do you say when you hear your family member or co-worker telling a racist joke? 
All these instances are opportunities for us to walk the way. And as Francis of Assisi once wrote, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Thank you again for listening. This has been The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network.